Hey folks, you're listening to To Know the Land, broadcasting from the traditional treaty territories of the Mississauga of the Credit on 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Or maybe you're listening online to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It's a show about people's connections with the land base, how we learn about the land, how we interact with the land, how we live with the land. And today I get the great privilege of talking to Dr. Lisa Walsh. Uh, Lisa, can you can you introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm a mammologist and biology education researcher. I got my PhD at the University of Michigan, and now I'm currently working as a postdoctoral researcher for the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center. They are located in St. Louis, Missouri, but I am currently living in DC, working remotely. Uh, so DC is the ancestral lands of the Anacostans, Piscataway, and Pamunkey peoples. Can you tell us a little bit about the Danforth Center? It, uh, I don't know much about it. Um, yeah, so it was founded as a center for uh, plant science research. And the idea was they really wanted St. Louis to be the hub for all things plant science with the intent of improving the quality of life for, for humans via plants. So this especially centers on nutrition and uh, making plants as effective and, and helpful as possible and I am working from the education lens where I'm really focusing on how can we bring in as many people as possible, future scientists, how can we get them excited and curious about science in general, especially with plants. So we're, we're really interested in diver diversifying uh, the, the future generations of plant scientists. What does that work look like right now uh, with the pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. We, because we are not a university, we were very nimble. As soon as COVID-19 was declared a pandemic, we received ethical approval to send out surveys to undergraduate students in biology all across the nation. So that at, all across the US <laughs> and so that we could gather data right when the pandemic started from students in terms of uh, how they were how they were feeling, how they viewed themselves, did they see themselves as scientists? Uh, and then at the end of that first semester, that I call it the COVID nineteen interrupted semester, we resurveyed them uh, to see how they're doing, and we actually have a paper coming out where. We found, interestingly, basically their, their confidence and uh, their stress levels weren't, weren't changed over time, but their general value in biology dropped significantly. And that is something that we are really happy that we were able to measure because that means moving forward, we need to put in that much more effort to basically regain the, the values from those students. And so we're digging through 
uh, qualitative data now from students to figure out why they, they had this drop in valuing biology. It sounds like other more pressing needs come up maybe and like, you know, your, 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 your calling as a biologist maybe gets put on hold because you got to figure out, you know, food and rent maybe and other, other things. Are there any ideas of what, what the data is showing so far? We have a graduate student who is currently sifting through the data. So I can only go off of pure speculation and the end of our measurements were back in May and June of 2020. I think this was before a lot of the really exciting news about how quickly and effective science responded. I, so I think my guess is if we resurveyed them again, there would be a, an increase again in their value in biology. But mm. so I, I'm, I'm just uh, making a, a prediction that it, 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 it's probably a combination of science was still so, um, there was still so many unanswered questions back in May and, and June. For and sure. I, I agree with you that they, during a, a pandemic, especially early on in that pandemic, it was really about survival and getting through the courses that they had signed up for, assuming that they would be in person. So mm -hmm. we're, we're really excited about going through that data and, and coming up with some recommendations for best practices moving forward. That's amazing work and obviously very pertinent, and very uh, timely. Um, something that isn't so timely, but I really <laughs> wanted to talk to you about, and I, I was really curious about, and I think this is what caught my attention um, for your work, is that you wrote a paper uh, which was published in the Canadian Journal of Zoology, and it's uh, Contemporary Range Expansion of the Virginia Opossum impacted by humans and snow cover. So there's been a lot of opossum sightings uh, this winter um, with the, that I've seen and that my students have seen and we've seen together. And it got me thinking more about opossums and how, are, how is the range expansion working out? And so when I saw that you've done so much work learning about this, I really had to get a hold of you. So. This is why, this is, this is the thick of what I really wanted to talk about. Um, but I wanted to start with, when we think of range expansion, um, I always wanna go back to what is the habitual range? Where, where do opossums come from? Do you know what their earliest recorded range would be? The earliest recorded range we have is from about the 1600s and it's, patchy, but from uh, fur traders, we know that they were limited to, uh, they, they were as far north as Ohio. Uh, but we, so going back further, uh, we, we know that they spread out of Mesoamerica. Uh, they were part of a well, opossums in general were part of a larger group of mammals that 
uh, when there was a land bridge between South America and North America, they were one of the groups of mammals that spread from South America into North America. Uh, opossums were pretty late uh, in terms of when they arrived. This was about 800,000 years ago. And this was a group of about a dozen species of opossum. But we just have one species up here in the temperate North America, including the US and Canada. And I just learned that I, I would think maybe it's because I'm just so focused on here, which is a great lesson, that our Virginia opossum is not the common opossum. The, the common opossum is a different species. Yeah. Yeah. Didelphus marsupialis. So that is one of the species that is uh, limited to uh, Mesoamerica. So they're as far north as Mexico. So there are places in Mexico where both species occur. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that that was uh, coined the common opossum. But mm -hmm. for us, the opossum that is common is actually uh, Didelphus virginiana or the Virginia opossum. Is there any records of hybridization? I did have a veterinarian from Mexico reach out to me thinking that there might be hybridization. Um, and so I believe that she's investigating that. So that's a, that's a good question. And they are very, they are very similar in terms of how they look. The opossum that we have is slightly bigger. It's also able to retain quite a bit of fat, subcutaneous fat, whereas the opossum species that are limited to Mesoamerica don't really um, develop large fat deposits. So it's, it's built better for, for northern winters, and That's not too far north. Like. Yeah. yeah. Cool. What's the habitat preference for um, the Virginia opossum? Where does it like to live? It likes to live in wet, mixed deciduous forests. So if there's a wetland in the forest, they like marshlands. They also really like edge habitats though too. Um, and so if you see them in your backyard and your backyard has a, just a little bit of a tree line, that, that would be exactly where they would wanna be. They tend to avoid dense coniferous forests and deserts. But that's about it. They they do not seem to be picky otherwise. What are they eating? What, what are the opossums eating? I think a better question might be what aren't they eating? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they they just seem to they seem to eat everything. I mean when when you go through the literature of um, natural historians who dissected opossum stomachs. They'll have insects, birds, mammals, plants, and reptiles in their stomachs. It, they, they really, they, they seem to eat everything. Uh, the really important thing for them is that they get enough calcium. Uh, if they don't get enough calcium, and, which is something that we typically only see in uh, opossums that have had to be taken into wildlife centers, they develop basically their own version of rickets. Um, mm -hmm. And it can be really debilitating 
Uh, and so a lot of opossums that aren't fed a really careful diet by wildlife rehabbers uh, cannot be released back into the wild. Now, this is a, this is a strange question I, I ask out of pure ignorance. Is it, in my mind, I imagine uh, these, these limestone cliff walls, calcium carbonate, and I'm like, would an opossum chew on rock the same way that maybe a horse would lick salt or, or a moose would go for some sort of salt lick? Would an opossum do that to, to get the calcium they need from the calcium carbonate um, from, the, from the limestone? That's a great question. I think I, I have no idea if there's any record of that, but okay. they, they will eat bone. Um, okay. Yeah. So they, they, if they get a mouse small enough, they will eat bone. The issue is if their diet is primarily fruits and vegetables. So um, mm -hmm. at the Ohio wildlife center, which uh, they've, they were very kind and have given me some samples. They had this opossum who, loved grapes so much that he essentially ate himself to uh, metabolic bone disease, which is their version of rickets, because he just, you know, he would be given this array of food items, which included uh, either mice or fish, but he would just make a beeline to the grapes. Mm. So he came down with metabolic bone disease. And he, he became an education animal because he couldn't be released. But uh, that way he, he was able to engage a lot of, a lot of visiting students uh, with all things opossum. Which is great. Cause yeah. I think that they, they've got a bad rap sometimes but opossums are so cute and so nice. And we had this, really, sorry. They really run the gamut. So young opossums are especially cute, but then you can also come across this really weathered, grizzled, old, big male who just, you know, he's missing fur. So it's really, they run the whole spectrum, which is, is why I kind of like them. Uh, and, you know, when you meet someone, they always have an opinion about an opossum, which not every, every scientist can say about what they research. Yeah, I, I don't know if everybody has an opinion on fruit flies. <laughs> so yeah. it's just like, yeah. Um, one of the, there's seems to be a lot of neat things about opossums that I've learned about over the years and have talked to my students about. And one of the things that we were talking about recently was they have a kind of unique relationship with ticks. Um, can you, can you explain anything that you know about the possum's relationship with ticks? Yeah, so when you asked me what do opossums eat, and I said basically everything, that includes ticks. So they will groom themselves, and if there are ticks on them, uh, that those become part of their meal. Uh, and so they, they are really good at controlling uh, ticks. What the research hasn't shown yet is we don't know if opossums are so effective that they actually do, do, do they impact the prevalence of Lyme disease. We haven't verified that yet. It's been speculated that they could help control Lyme disease. So any 
future researchers out there, that's a question that you could go out and examine. If you don't like ticks, you should definitely like opossums. Are they susceptible to Lyme disease? As far as I'm aware, no. There are, there are quite a few diseases that they just aren't susceptible to or are much less susceptible. So the, the most common is rabies. Really the only cases where they uh, have contracted rabies is this part of New York where the virus becomes aerosolized, which I don't know about you. I just, I, I don't like the idea of aerosolized rabies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know how that happens? It, I believe the literature has suggested it's some sort of um, weird uh, water or weather phenomenon. I'm not sure if it's, a, it might be a combination of the weather and the waterways that are there. What about things like, I've been reading about uh, prairie dogs out in Western Canada and mountain lions in the States that have contracted plague, like the bubonic plague. Has there been any recording of, of bubonic plague in, in opossums? Uh, there have not been. Um, I, there, if I remember correctly, there was maybe one case of chronic wasting disease, but also the, the prevalence of disease in opossums is, is not highly studied. Um, what we do know is that they are the primary host for a parasite that causes uh, EPM or equine protozoal myo myelencephalitis, uh, which basically causes um, neurological problems in horses. It also occasionally shows up in um, cats and dogs. So that is, uh, of concern. So when I meet people who own horses, they uh, they have some strong opinions about opossums. How 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 prevalent is that that disease or that that parasite or pathogen? Um, basically, all, so the only research on prevalence actually came out of Michigan, and they found that it was least common in Northern Michigan, which uh, we have, there, there were fewer possums because they, they've arrived there more recently. It's also more coniferous than Southern Michigan. And so there's probably a direct relationship between how many opossums are in an area and um, EPM. I think, I think it's, it's a pretty widespread parasite. It doesn't impact the opossums at all, as far as we know. So it stays in their lower intestine, uh, but it it uh, it will travel to the brain and in other mammals if it's ingested. Unfortunately, hmm. is there uh, a way that it's often communicated between the opossum and the horse, or are the opossums going after the feed of the horse, or are they drinking from there? So typically. Uh, what happens is the, the opossums do not dig to make their own dens, but they love lining their dens. So they'll, they'll find tree hollows or they'll find um, other animals that have dug out dens and they love to line their dens uh, with leaves, but also with 
hay. And so if they're in the area collecting hay and they defecate, that's how the parasite gets um, uh, transferred over to the horse. If the horse then eats hay that had uh, a possum fecal matter on it, they're likely to be infected. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, speaking of samples. You didn't know the interview was going to take that route. <laughs> no, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. On on uh, This week, we've officially renamed our program. We don't actually meet on Tuesdays anymore. We now meet on Tuesday <laughs> because the kids really love investigating scat and looking at it and trying to identify the animal based on the scat we're finding. So it's, it's, yeah, I love, I love, I guess I, I'm a bit of a scatologist learning about <laughs> it a bit more. So this is great. This is great information that helps. I have more in my wheelhouse now. You, you mentioned that uh, the prevalence in Michigan, and I wanted to touch on your work about um, opossums spreading uh, northward into like Michigan, into Southern Ontario. And one of the ways that you had to measure this was you got samples from opossums all over. And I was wondering, how did you take these samples and where, where did these samples come from? That's a great question. So my, the research paper that came out in 2018 uh, that was from my master's work, and I originally was going to trap opossums and take ear samples, but after two trapping nights where I mostly got raccoons, one very angry raccoon and one very sad raccoon, uh, I... I decided to go a different route, so I collected roadkill. I would drive around, not quite highways, but pretty um, either busy roads or roads near farms where the speed limit was between 35 and 50 miles an hour. That seemed to be the best for large mammal roadkill. And so I got really good at, at spine roadkill. So I would just drive around Ohio and Michigan looking for roadkill. And I just didn't have the, the energy or I guess the gas to also sample Wisconsin. So I reached out to fur trappers and asked them to send me ear tissue samples from opossums that they had trapped and it it worked out great I got to see a lot of Michigan that I otherwise wouldn't have seen got to experience some smells got some weird looks as I was moving carcasses off the road I, I had I, I enjoyed it it's a, it seems like a very ethical way of of harvesting the samples, you know, it, it's not as invasive as a trap. Um, I'm sure the samples are still viable and uh, allows trappers and uh, to, to 
be a part of this uh, conservation process and learning about learning about the, the 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 ongoing developing natural history of these animals. Yeah, I I actually the the fur trappers became some of my experts. So they I I had to call them to say I'm interested in sampling the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Have you seen any in your county yet? And they were the, the expert. They, if anyone knew that there was an opossum in that county, it would have been them. Uh, and so they were basically my, my evidence that, oh, opossums haven't made it this far east into the Upper Peninsula yet. And they, they also told me about how much opossums like to den in hay. And, and so it's, uh, I, I, think it, I think fur trappers are an underutilized resource as experts in science. It sounds like an ongoing um, frontline relationship, you know, like they, they're right there all the time with the animals they're working with and harvesting and, and, and trapping. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and what kind of samples were you taking? You said ear and then I think uh the Yes, I was taking ear if possible. Um, so there are some scavengers that for whatever reason fixate on the head. Um, so sometimes there would not be any ear to take. Uh, in that case, I tried sampling their tail. That really didn't work out. So the, the tail of opossums, it's really leathery. It's, it's not, you want nice soft tissue to process. You don't want something that's almost scaly in texture. Uh, and so uh, I switched to toe pad uh, later after this research, uh, but other tissues that I took uh, included lip from, from fur trappers. They, they said, well, can I sample lip? And I said, sure. And, and so that worked, but it was mostly ear. It, that, that is um, easy tissue to process and you don't have to do any further dissection of, of the roadkill. With opossums, the ears and the tails are, are quite exposed and often susceptible to uh, frostbite. Would the frostbite affect the viability of the sample? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, as far as I know, at least for the ear, it did not. What, what would be bad is if it was an older specimen. So if, if it had been decomposing, then, then you're starting to have DNA that's been degrading long enough that it's mm. just, it's hard to have the genetic sequence still intact that you are trying to use to ask questions about uh, the possum. Hmm. All this was to sort of, what, what, well, before I get into that, what was, what was the next step? So you take the sample and then you're doing genetic testing. And when I read the paper, this is, this is the part of the paper that I don't, I don't understand because mm -hmm. I've never got to do this work, but it sounds like a, a a series of really complex uh, experiments or, or analysis. And do you, when you think of uh, STEM work, do you think of 
this this gene testing or like I it's just a world I don't understand. Can you tell can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, so I essentially ran a 23andMe on the possums I had collected. Uh, but so whereas 23andMe has you know, a population of people where, well, we know where you came from. We, we know we have a population of uh, Eastern European. We have a popu population of Sub-Saharan Africa. And so we're gonna take your DNA and test it knowing these various genetic markers tell us something about ancestrally, where did that DNA come from? Well, I didn't have any of that. And so we have the software where you can say, all right, I have this much uh, diversity among my samples. And you use an iterative algorithm that will tell you, all right, based on, on your samples, you actually have two populations. And then, so my, my samples were also acting to inform me of, inform me about how much genetic diversity and how many populations did I have. And then I used them again to say, all right, what, which population did you come from? Uh, and this paper showed me that I had a population east of Lake Michigan and I had a population west of Lake Michigan, but there were some, some outliers as well. So there were some, some possums that uh, I collected in Michigan, but actually were more closely related to the possums I had collected in Wisconsin. Uh, so it, it can seem complicated, but there are other people who specialize in the statistical algorithms that actually help piece your data apart. So I was a geneticist, but I was relying on something that a statistician with genetic knowledge had already built for me. Um, so it's really about using tools that are already there if they have been developed. I appreciate the 23andMe analogy because that helps me understand yeah, you're looking at uh, origins and and parents, and I mean, we, we, we like you said, twenty three me. We do this to to look at our our ancestries and our our origins. And whereas twenty three and me is using areas across our genome that are are take longer to change between populations. I was using something called uh, microsatellite, which has a very high mutation rate. It's something that we call junk DNA, basically, um, where it, this is not, it's DNA that is not being turned into a protein, but the, the basically internal software that we have, the enzymes that go through our DNA and check, these microsatellites are made up of repeats of the genetic code. And those repeats can confuse the enzymes. And so they might add an extra repeat. And so what I was using was, okay, well, how many repeats do I actually see in this opossum versus that opossum? 
And because it, it, it's mutating so quickly, it can, it can find differences in populations only going back um, a, a few generations. So That's these amazing. Opossums, yeah, these opossums are not super far. Their family trees don't go back very far in the past. That's that's really cool because it's not it's not it's a much more immediate form of testing. That that's really interesting. It's I'm trying to think of uh, an analogies. I, I do a lot of animal tracking, and I'm thinking it's like that's like looking for uh, uh, scent marking. So like if an animal urinates somewhere, it here's a sign that's not gonna last through the season like maybe you might find like a kill site later on or even scat that's been left around for a while but the urine mark it shows more immediacy and that's just, it seems like what you're tracking there is this much more immediate sign you have to be aware uh, of kind of what the depending on what the genetic marker you're using uh how how detailed would it be? So we wouldn't really recommend using this to uh, tell the relationships between across a lot of different species, but it, it gives us a pretty refined idea uh, when we're looking at populations that uh, are adjacent to one another. What, what were some of the results, some of your findings about um, about the about the opossums in your study? I was really interested in, in testing this uh, hypothesis that uh, the opossums were spreading north because of temperature. Because previous researchers had estimated, oh, well, based on temperature, the opossum range should end right here. And that was about the middle of Northern Michigan. When in fact, opossums had made it all the way up into the upper peninsula. So they, they were farther north than what the temperature suggested. There had also been population modeling where they were tracking how many opossums were born, their death rates, and it just didn't seem to add up. This research took place in Massachusetts where the, their death rate seemed too high in the winter to, to make sense in terms of, well, why, do we, why are we seeing them continue to, to show up and to move further north? And that author thought that it was because of humans. So, we're either giving them food or our porches are acting as additional dens. And so I, I tested, I looked at the gen, genetic diversity of opossums in different areas and compared it to either these climate measurements or these human measurements. And uh, at least in the Midwest, what I found so if you have a population that is more diverse, that suggests that it is either older or it is a larger population. So I found that, and, and you want genetic diversity, uh, and I found that genetic diversity was higher in areas where there was less snow cover, 
So it turns out it's probably the snow cover that's limiting where they are rather than the temperature. So they have pretty similar hands and feet to what you and I have. It's there, it's not this like thick insulated paw like your dogs would have. So they really don't want to go out and forage when there's snow on the ground. That's not going to be comfortable. So that seemed to be uh, what was limiting where they would and would not live. But we also found higher genetic diversity where there were lots of farms. At least in the Midwest, then it seems like they don't, cities weren't impacting their populations, but the presence of farms was positively impacting them. Is there, is there anything in their behavior that is, is encouraging this expansion? Like if they're moving up into places where I guess they're thriving, but at the same time, we came across at least three dead opossums over, over the winter. And uh, there was no sign of, of predation, no sign of, of anything. Maybe one was poisoned. We aren't sure, um, but I'm just wondering, like, what is it in this behavior that's leading them to expand into a range that's harmful, or or or, or is is increasing, or I don't know if it's increasing mortality, but yeah, what what is it in their behavior that's expanding their range, encouraging them to to broaden and expand their range? In terms of behavior. Um after they are weaned from their mother, they are solitary. They don't want to be around other opossums. So they're, they're doing their best to move away from both their mother and their uh, siblings after they're weaned. And they're relatively nomadic. They will wander. They can also have up to 20 dens that they will cycle between. And so I, I think it's primarily, essentially random drift where, you know, I'm sure that there are some possums who are moving south from basically where they were born, and, but there are some that are moving north. Uh, they also will, it appears they follow uh, streams and rivers. And so those are kind of, so like I said, they really like uh, kind of wet wooded areas and those kind can insulate them. Uh, and, and so I, I think, you know, for the three that you found, I'm sure there's one that found a great den potentially under someone's porch uh, and they're, they just managed to hunker down and survive the winter. I guess out of curiosity, the possums that you found uh, dead, were they, did they seem heavy or did they seem emaciated? Uh, one of them I would say was pretty heavy and that was the one that we were thinking of possible poisoning. Mm -hmm. um, the other one, Actually, when I think of it, it was definitely small and like uh, emaciated. 
And I think we had all, all assumed that one was, that one was, uh, which we'll call it, uh, frozen to death. Yeah. But, you know, there wasn't such bad um, frostbite on the tail or on the ears. There was a little bit, but it wasn't terrible. But I mean, after reading your paper, maybe realizing maybe it's about the snow cover because the snow cover really, the snow held on this winter. We didn't get much snow. There was actually really little precipitation, one of the least amounts in recent years, but the snow stayed. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe that's what was going on. They just couldn't forage. They couldn't find enough food. And the other, I would say about maybe mid-ground, I couldn't tell. I don't think it's something I looked for, how emaciated they would have been. Opossums have very slow metabolic rate. Uh, so some, some researchers who monitored their behavior in the winter, they didn't, so if the weather was harsh, they would just skip going outside of their den. So they'd essentially not eat that day. And that skipping an entire day of foraging, the metabolic cost is only the equivalent of a small mouse. So they mm. can go a long time actually between, uh, between meals or they, they can really stretch out how little they forage. Um, uh, another researcher calculated that between a, across 120 days of winter, if they have good foraging for 30 of those days, they can make it Wow! through the winter. As long as they are two and a half kilograms, that's about five and a half pounds, as long as they're that heavy when winter sets in, because they will lose up to 40% of that through the winter. So it's just a question of, are they heavy at the start of winter? And can they, can they forage successfully for 30 of those days? That's amazing. I, I think of often, I'm, I'm more experienced with other animals that have high, high metabolic rate, like, uh, like weasels constantly on the move oh, looking yeah. for food. Yeah. And um, it's really neat to, to start thinking about the other way as well. It's like, oh, something that's, uh, it's a little bit slower. Is there, is there any sort of associated reasons with this uh, slow metabolic rate? Is there something in their physiology that can help us understand why uh, they have a slow metabolic rate? Or is it just a, a, a skill that they picked up along the way? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't know if, I'm not sure if it's a skill. I also, I, I don't know how it compares to other marsupials. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's a, that's a good question that I, I, I don't, I don't know the answer to. That's cool. Those are the best. Yeah. Uh, uh, I was wondering as well, are there any physiological changes associated with the spread north? Like, are they, 
are these naked parts like the tail and ears, are they, are they getting hairier? Are they shrinking? Have you noticed any of that sort of thing yet? Or is that something that's gonna take a lot more time to develop? Mm. Well, I looked for the obvious, um, or I looked for an obvious tree. I looked to see if there's any signs that they molt um, or if they grow additional fur for the winter. There, there, there's no signs that they're, they're doing anything. Um, mm. I haven't looked at how much fur there is on the tail. Um, there is variation across their range, but that's nothing new. Um, so they, they have a lighter tail and a lighter coat um, in the Northern range. If, if you compare them to possums in, in Texas and in uh, Mesoamerica, for example, they're, they're also smaller in Mesoamerica, uh, but Otherwise, we're not, we haven't found any, any, any traits that seem to be helping them. Um, what, what seems to really help them is having this generalist diet where, mm -hmm. uh, so I, I collected an opossum that was, that had been killed in North Dakota uh, and it had suddenly appeared the very first day in January that it it was it temperatures got above freezing um, and the snow started to, to melt. And it was seen underneath someone's bird feeder eating the bird seed. Uh, and when I opened up its stomach, its stomach was completely full. I think it looks like it had found some dog food that, or cat food that someone had left outside. It had been eating some grass. Um, there were, some, there was a hip bone of a mouse. Uh, and, and of course I found the, the sunflower seeds from, from the bird feeder. So because it's able to go out and forage and its foraging is not restricted really in in any way when temperatures allow it to forage. That seems to, to be uh, a contributing factor to allowing them to survive these winters that, you know, they, they seem miserable, but they're, they're doing it. That's amazing. And, I, and maybe that's like, that's the, like you say, it's the key component possibly for this northward expansion that they can they're such generalists. They they eat everything. I wonder if that's like a like I, I want I want another word for an omnivore, but it says like all. Like how do we say not just every? Like how do we say more than omnivore? But opportunivore maybe. But oh yeah, I like that. Yeah. I like yeah. Thank you for talking about the possums because I mean, this helps answer so many questions, but then I love it also because it helps create new questions. And you, you aren't really working with the possums anymore. That's not your focus. Um, but I was wondering if there's any other work that you're especially excited about these days that you are working on that's like getting you really stoked. 
Yeah. Uh, so because I'm a mammalogist and because I uh, went out uh, and conducted field research, and, but in, in my sense, it was driving around, uh, I have had the opportunity to teach students mammalogy. So my, my students were primarily senior undergraduate biology students. Something that I had been wanting to talk to them a lot about because we use museum specimens, I wanted to talk to them about the deep rooted history between museum collections and colonialism. So this includes uh, the use of slaves or slave ships to collect museum specimens. This also includes the exploitation of indigenous peoples to collect museum specimens. I've developed uh, with the help of uh, someone in the education department at Michigan, I developed an activity to introduce my students to the idea of decolonizing science with the emphasis that not every student was actually being introduced to this concept, but some of them were. So I tried to develop an inclusive activity to meet them wherever they were and have them critically examine our collection. I used our primate collection to, to do that, uh, mostly because of where our primates come from. It's, primarily areas that were once or continue to be uh, colonized. And they critically evaluated our primate collection and asked questions that we put into a letter and actually sent to the new museum director at the University of Michigan. And it, it really engage students in, in thinking critically. I actually just had a student reach out to me um, and ask for some of the materials to share again. Um, and it, this is hopefully just the beginning. Um, I did it virtually with my students during a pandemic. I didn't know if I actually had the cognitive space to hold a discussion like that, but it was really something important to me. And my students just blew me away with their insight and their critical examination of, you know, Western science. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm so proud of them in, in general, in terms of how they handled the pandemic. Um, but I was also, um, it, it, it was a joy to read their thoughts. And so I'm, um, I'm writing up this activity with the hope of encouraging other uh, instructors who are teaching at Western institutions to start thinking about how they can uh, infuse discussions like this into their classroom, um, even if it isn't the what fits into the curriculum. Because so I was a teaching assistant, I had to find a way to fit this into the what the professor wanted. Um, so basically, my my sentiment is, if I can do it, Anyone can do it, um, and and hopefully there will eventually be entire courses on this um, rather than uh, just activities. That's awesome. That's really cool. And I think, like, 
now more than ever, but even yeah, this is great. That's, that's the sort of thing that I think we really need in all sorts of spheres, but to, to colonization comes in many fronts and many, many pronged approaches to disrupting it are, are really necessary. And so if we can find tools and ways to do this, like this activity, like this tool that you're developing, that's the kind of thing we need. And what a great experience for these, these students too, to not only just learn about it theoretically, but to compose the letter together and address it to the museum. What, what a helpful tool for the future of biology, for the future of decolonial work and for these students. So thank you so much for developing that. Yeah, thank you for letting me talk about it. And while we're thanking, thank you very much for taking the time to talk about uh, an older research project as well, because your, your, your answers, your insight onto opossums is incredible and not a lot of people seem to know a lot or, or are willing or able to share. So I really appreciate the work that you've done to learn more about uh, how they're spreading their range. And you also do have done a really awesome job at maybe translating is the word, uh, a paper that can be a bit difficult at times for someone like me who doesn't know everything about genetics uh, of making it easier to understand. So thank you for interpreting your work and sharing it with us all as well. Sure, happy to. Again, that was mammologist Dr. Lisa Walsh discussing her paper, The Contemporary Rage Expansion of a Virginia Opossums Impacted by Humans and Snow Cover, which was published in the Canadian Journal of Zoology. I really appreciate Lisa's work also on, on decolonizing biology and how do we do this in good ways. It's neat when the folks you wanna to talk to about one subject are also doing other cool things. And it doesn't always happen, but how cool is it when it does? Because then you can hear about the work in one sphere and then also take joy and, and inspiration from the work in another. Uh, the show is To Know the Land. If you're just tuning in on the radio or if you're listening to it on a podcast, you probably know already. But again, if you want to listen to it as a podcast, you can check out toknowtheland.com or look up Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever else that you're listening to podcasts. If you have any critique or curiosities or questions, uh, you can always email me at toknowtheland at gmail.com. I think that's it. Tune in next week. Take care.